Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, where for 37 years we have engaged the public in reflection and dialogue on the key issues of our day from an ethical perspective. Our hour-long forums are free and open to all, and we invite you to join us in the sanctuary of Westminster Church for our upcoming events. Information can be found at westminsterforum.org or on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn as well. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church, located on Nicollet Mall in beautiful downtown Minneapolis, and I'm the moderator of the forum. It's my pleasure to introduce today's guest speaker. Steve Schmidt is a political strategist, public relations executive, and a political analyst on MSNBC. He was deputy assistant to the president in the George W. Bush administration, and he served as the top strategist for the president's re-election campaign. In 2008, he was senior advisor to the John McCain presidential campaign, and as a result of this historic campaign, one of the few contemporary political strategists to be portrayed in a movie by Woody Harrelson, <laughs> the award-winning film Game Change. Steve is vice chairman of the global communications marketing firm Edelman, where he advises politicians and business executives on technology, financial services, healthcare, energy policy, and more. He serves on the board of the nonprofit research organization, Just Capital, which ranks companies on their commitment to fair pay, equal treatment of all workers, community building, and sustainability. With David Flauf, the campaign manager for Barack Obama's 2008 presidential election, he co-founded the Center for Political Communication at the University of Delaware. As one of the nation's most plugged-in political operatives, he will offer a candid look at today's headlines and explore what the latest political news means for people on Main Street, Wall Street, Capitol Hill, and beyond. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Steve Schmidt. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. It's a, uh, it's a real pleasure to be with you today in this uh, beautiful space, this beautiful church. Um, my wife is from Minnesota. I am from New Jersey. I would, I would normally be traveling with my translator, uh, but he, <laughs> he missed his flight, so I apologize in advance. Um, for those of you disconsolate about the state of politics, let me comfort you with these words. Uh, quoting John McCain, my former boss, his favorite quote, quoting Chairman Mao, is to remember, it's always darkest before it's completely black. <laughs> we, have, we have 25 minutes, and what I want to talk about today is time, and love, and country, and America as an idea. Um, but show of hands, very quickly, does anybody here know anyone who's 80 years old in life? <laughs> does anybody here know anybody who's under five years old. Okay. Let's talk about time. Let's, let's go back from today 80 years to the beginning of that 80-year-old's life. In the year is 1938. And the world is on the edge of a storm. The world is on the edge of a storm. Let's go back, though, another 80 years. And the year is 1858. And there's a new state admitted to the Union, our 32nd state of Minnesota. And it's four years since a new political party was founded in 1854. And that political party was called the Republican Party. And the Republican Party came into existence because of the moral collapse of the Whig Party. The Kansas-Nebraska Act which allows for slavery now to spread into the Western territories and puts the country onto a collision course to settle finally and to account for the nation's original sin. The disconnect 
between our perfect founding ideals expressed in the Declaration of Independence, the most important, the most revolutionary, and I think the greatest words ever put to paper by the mind of man that all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with inalienable rights, among them life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The war would come, and this question of slavery would be settled. And the first Republican president, Abraham Lincoln, would reimagine and rededicate the cause of liberty in the United States. And there came a moment in that war on the decisive day, the Battle of Gettysburg. Now, it was never the goal of the South to conquer the North. Lee took his army north into Pennsylvania to break the will of the North, to cause the North to surrender. The war had gone on longer than anybody had ever thought. And when it was over in 1865, it would be the bloodiest war in the history of this country. Three million men under arms, 600,000 killed. In Pennsylvania on that second day at the Battle of Gettysburg at a place called Cemetery Ridge, a political appointee, a general named Dan Sickles, as incompetent as many of the people we see in this White House, <laughs> makes a disastrous decision. Alabama infantry sees and advances on the edge of taking control of the big guns on Cemetery Ridge. Winfield Scott Hancock, a major general in the Union Army, who would become the Democratic nominee for president in 1880, he sees immediately what's happening, and he recognizes in an instant that the Union line is about to be broken, and the consequence of that would be that the Confederate Army would be on the high ground. The Confederate Army would be able to sweep the Union Army from Cemetery Ridge, and then the Confederate Army would be between Washington, D.C. and the Union Army. The war would be over. The nation would be divided. Winfield Scott Hancock galloped. He galloped to the first Union, union unit he saw closest to that advance. There was no St. Crispin's Day speech. There was no patriotic declaration. Winfield Scott Hancock said, what unit is this? He said, the first Minnesota. He said, fix bayonets and charge. He needed to buy minutes, minutes to reinforce the line. And he said later he would have sacrificed the lives of every man to do it. And that very nearly happened. Those men fixed their bayonets and they charged. They charged a Confederate advance that outnumbered them five to one. And in all the history of the United States military, there has never been a unit that went into action that sustained more casualties, 82%, than the first Minnesota. But in that moment, those men saved the United States of America. Have no doubt about it. They saved the country. And a fair number of them didn't speak a word of English. They were German immigrants. And they came to America not because they saw the travel brochure and not because they saw the Anthony Bourdain special but because of an idea that here you could be free. You could speak your mind, you could pray to your God, you could live your life, you could shape your destiny. We're the only country in the history of the world founded on the power of an idea. The pursuit of happiness, life, and liberty. We're the only country in the world that has been made up of all of the peoples of the world. We're the only country in the world where every day every language of the world is spoken. And that country, our country, 
has done more good, has freed more people, has fed more people, cured more people than all the other countries of the world put together since the beginning of time. And that is why we are an exceptional nation. If you ever have the experience of going to the American cemetery in Normandy, France, I'm sure it will be as powerful for you as it was for me. Let me tell you a story of a remarkable American. When he was a young man, he said, I'll never be judged by my own name. He was very wrong about that. This son of the 26th President of the United States, Teddy Roosevelt Jr., would go off to war in the First World War. He would be wounded multiple times, gassed, recipient of multiple silver stars, the Distinguished Service Cross. He came home, founded Lehman Brothers, the American Legion. He served as Governor General of the Philippines. He was narrowly defeated in the election in 1924 in New York State for the office of governor. But, but his true calling, what he was great at, was leading men in combat. And so when we think about privilege and the exercise of it by the elites, by people who take special advantage, let's talk about the time that Teddy Roosevelt Jr. used his privilege. He was a one-star general. And on the morning of June 6th, he had succeeded in his intense lobbying campaign to have the privilege, in his view, to fulfill his duty to be the first man off the first landing craft on Utah Beach, which nobody thought was a good idea because they rated his chances of survival as zero. And what he said is, to his friend General Raymond, the division commander, he said, I'll be there and I'll lead the men ashore. If they see a general there, the men will be calm. And Teddy Roosevelt Jr. landed in the first five landing craft that morning. And he recognized immediately that they had landed miles south. And he said, General, we're on the wrong beach. And he said, don't worry. He said, we'll start the war from here. He had a cane, his helmet, and a sidearm. Under fire all day, the son of a president never flinched. He had dinner with his son, Captain Quentin Roosevelt, two weeks after D-Day. So not only was he the son of a president, not only was he the only general officer to land on D-Day, he was the only father who had a son who landed in the first wave. Teddy Roosevelt Jr., shortly before that dinner with his son, he wrote a letter to his wife and he said, I love you so much. He said, I don't know what the future will bring, but we're so lucky. We've, we've lived more adventures in one lifetime than people could hope to do in 10. Teddy Roosevelt Jr. had dinner with his son told him he was proud of him. He laid down on his bunk that night in his command trailer, Rough Rider. He died of a heart attack. Not knowing that his longtime political nemesis, the President of the United States, his fifth cousin, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, had signed off on his receipt of the Medal of Honor, and he had been promoted and achieved his career ambition of being given command of his own division as a major general. You can go to the American Cemetery in France and you can see Teddy Roosevelt Jr.'s grave in Boston Gold, one of the three Medal of Honor recipients buried there. One of the 38 pairs of brothers buried there. Next to him is the only World War I combat fatality in that American cemetery, his brother Quentin. And when you stand in that American cemetery, you see the perfect alignment of the stars of David and the white crosses, perfect symmetry, an army at rest, an information. And every one of those graves faces west towards home. 
an unobstructed view of the Atlantic Ocean and Omaha Beach back across the ocean that they would not return to. And I wonder, with those 38 pairs of brothers buried there together, what those two sons of a president would think about the son-in-law and son of a president of the United States meeting with foreign hostile intelligence services to undermine the democratic process and election in this country. I wonder what they would think. You want to understand why Donald Trump is president? It's pretty easy. 44% of this country doesn't have $400 of available cash. There are more payday lenders than there are Starbucks. And there are almost more payday lenders than there are Starbucks and McDonald's combined. There hasn't been a real wage increase in this country for working people for a quarter century. The defining event of this generation was the economic collapse in 2008. What did people see? Will the bankers get a trillion dollar bailout? No one goes to jail? 13 million American families are foreclosed on? No small number of them being told to get all their stuff out of the house in 45 minutes by a deputy sheriff? 12 million Americans lose their jobs. One set of rules for everybody up here, different set of rules for everyone down here. So how is it that a Bernie Sanders voter in the primary votes for Donald Trump here? How is it in Europe that the far left parties, are, then it's the far right party and voters going back to the far left party and all the elites sit there, scratch their head and they say, the voters are crazy. They're schizophrenic. No. The elites are out of touch, out of touch. My political career has been defined by a vertical line like the 50-yard line of a football field. And we debate dumbly, angrily about marginal differences. If you listen to the rhetoric in the presidential campaigns, you would think that the delta between a just and an unjust society is the difference between the Obama-Clinton preferred top marginal tax rate of 39.6% and George Bush's of 35. When we think of this Trump era, man, the arguments we had about small and meaningless things. Shouting with great ferocity. So we debate between the 45-yard lines and the show business and theater of politics, but that line is dissipating and a new line is forming, and it's a horizontal one. And above that line are a population of people that are living longer, more prosperously, better than any human beings have ever lived on Earth. And if you were one of those people, you have more in common with people living in Metro Sydney and Melbourne and London and Paris and Berlin than you do with your own countrymen. One of my favorite moments of any presidential campaign is when the morning shows go on safari to Akron, Ohio. <laughs> Today, good listeners, let us introduce you to these primitive people. <laughs> you, got a, you got a second strata economically in this country that's vestigly middle class. They believe three things. Number one, that they are one misfortune away from financial disaster. Two, their kids will be worse off than they are. Three, that there's much better chance that they wind up in the bottom third than being able to climb up into the top third. And in that bottom third, which is more than a third, about 40% of the country, we see, as was the case at the fall of the Soviet Union, we see declining life expectancies for white men between 40 and 49. We see an opioid epidemic that will kill five to 700,000 Americans in the next 10 years. We lost 400,000 killed in the Second World War. 
We see rising infant mortality rates. We see rising maternal labor death rates. We see no positive indicators anywhere. And when a demagogue comes along and says, make America great again, it means three things. We were a great country, we're not anymore, and we're our last hour to be one again. The election of Donald Trump by 78,000 votes across three states is a symptom of the crisis that has been building as our institutions have become disconnected from the people, as people have lost trust, faith, and belief in systems and in institutions. And it didn't happen providentially. It happened because of the irresponsibility, the recklessness, the failure, the lies over many, many years. And so here we are. And a lot of people are pessimistic at this hour. They say, well, this is the worst it's ever been. It's not. We're the luckiest people alive. We're Americans. Anything is possible in this country. But there is no one else but us to fix what must be fixed. It's your duty. When, in the 19th century, the debate in the country was, should we have a mandatory public education system, which didn't necessarily make sense if you were a farmer here in Minnesota because you needed your son working the farm? What was the purpose of it? It was to create good citizens. Create good citizens. One of the most remarkable speeches in all of American history is the last speech delivered by Martin Luther King on April 3, 1968, in Memphis, Tennessee. And in a speech that I think is inarguably a prophecy of his own death, it rings out through the ages for its optimism. And what does Martin Luther King say in that speech? He says, if I could travel to any place in any time, if I could go and be with the pharaohs as the pyramids are being built, man, would that be amazing. But I'd keep moving. And I'd go to ancient Greece, and sit with Plato and Aristotle. But I'd keep moving on from there. And I'd go to ancient Rome. And I'd go to Philadelphia to the Declaration of Independence. But the point that Martin Luther King made was that the time that he chose to be alive was in the time that he lived. Because if he had been in ancient Egypt or Rome or Greece, then he wouldn't have been in Birmingham. And he wouldn't have been in Memphis. He wouldn't have marched in Montgomery. And Martin Luther King celebrates joyfully that he lives in a consequential time, that he lives in a moment that matters, as do all of we now. And then he says, longevity has its purpose. I want to have a long life. But it doesn't matter now because I've been to the mountaintop. And like Ulysses S. Grant on his deathbed, at the hour of his impending death, Martin Luther King looks out from a sea of injustice around him, but he sees on the horizon the reality that this country can fulfill its destiny and live up to that great idea and ideal. And he ends that speech and drops the mic with the lyrics from that great American hymn, Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. And it rings through the ages, that optimism. So all of you who feel disconsolate or angry, upset, who say the corruption and the lack of probity and the lack of rectitude the incompetence, the meanness, the cruelty, the malfeasance, we don't have to stand for it. <laughs> last, last, last word. Last, last word real quick. You cannot love your country 
If you hate half the people that live in it. And ladies and gentlemen, it's way past time to remember we are all in it together. We are all in it together. Let me tell you about a man who understood that. His name was Daniel Inouye, who's the senior senator from the state of Ohio, for the state of Hawaii. He was a young man and his family was taken off to a Japanese internment camp. The army came and he had an opportunity to serve. His father said to him, Danny, you go show them we're as good Americans as any American. And don't dishonor your family's name. Don't come home alive if you do. In April of 1945, Lieutenant Inouye of the 442nd Regimental Combat Team, the most decorated combat unit of the Second World War, all Japanese-American, led his platoon on a successive series of assaults on German pillbox structure. He was shot on the first assault, shot again on the second and the third, and before he destroyed the final pillbox, he did it with his arm blown from his body shot in the stomach. He spent years in recovery in an army hospital after the war. And he had a friend he met there, became a lifelong friend. He taught him to play bridge. And one day, his friend says to Danny Inouye, he says, Danny, what are you going to do when you get out of here? You know, he said, I have no idea. He said, I never thought we were getting out of here. <laughs> his friend said, well, so what are you going to do? He said, well, I'm going to go home, I'm going to go to law school, I'm going to run for county attorney, then I'm going to run for the Congress. In a way, later said, sounded pretty good to me. <laughs> so in 1959, when Hawaii is a new state, our last state, our 50th state, 18 states on from the 32nd state, he writes a letter on his new congressional letterhead to that friend. And he says, here I am, where are you? He would serve his whole life, become known as a man of honor in the United States Senate. And when his flag-draped casket was laid out at a place of honor as befitting a recipient of the Medal of Honor, under the Capitol Dome, the great act of optimism in America that Lincoln insists it be completed for the recongregation of American government, government of the people, by the people, for the people, that shall not perish from this earth, he orders it completed in the middle of civil war. And under that rotunda lays this casket, cordoned off by velvet ropes, and at the corners, standing at attention, soldiers of the United States Army. And an old man is wheeled up, his old friend from that hospital, in that wheelchair, and he gets to the edge of the ropes. The old man says, Danny would never want to see me in this wheelchair. And Bob Dole stands up. And he salutes with his good arm, his left arm, and says goodbye to a man that was his fierce partisan opponent, but his brother, a fellow American, and a man he loved as much as they both loved this country. Thank you very much. Thank you, Steve Schmidt, and thank you in the audience here at Westminster Church for that standing ovation. You're listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum broadcast from Westminster Presbyterian Church on Nicollet Mall in downtown Minneapolis. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior minister of Westminster Church and moderator of the forum. Our speaker today is political strategist and communications consultant Steve Schmidt. While the ushers collect questions from the in-house audience, I'd like to thank our broadcast partner, the statewide network of Minnesota Public Radio News, heard in the Twin Cities at 91.1 FM, and the media sponsor of today's forum, the online news source, MinPost. We invite you to join us at Westminster Church for the last two forums of the spring season. On Thursday, May 17, at noon, we welcome 
Palestinian soccer player and activist for equity, inclusion, and human rights, Hanif Algia. The event is a collaboration with the weekend-long arts festival, Windows into Palestine, here at Westminster. On Tuesday, May 22nd at 7 p.m., Richard Stengel, former managing editor of Time and an undersecretary of state in the Obama administration, will provide insight into Mandela's way, lessons on life for an uncertain age. Our events are always free and open to all. Further information can be found at westminsterforum.org. And now, Steve Schmidt, if you would return to the pulpit, I will present the questions from the audience. You referred to Abraham Lincoln a number of times in your remarks. I wonder if you might say something about his comment about the better angels of our nature. What has happened to the better angels of our nature, from your view? Well, I still think that they're there. Um, you know, we saw we saw last week in a in a Waffle House a 29 year old African American um, charge a gunman, take an AR-15 away from him, and saved a lot of lives. In Las Vegas during the shooting, there was an African American man, Johnny Smith, who ran into the crowd and he saved 33 people. And when he was shot twice in the neck, it was a white cop who ran into the gunfire to save him. And that's also America, right? There are acts of kindness and decency that take place all around us all day, every day. You see the remarkable competence of a former Navy fighter pilot when an engine blows apart and someone's sucked out of an airplane at 30,000 feet who lands it. The American people are so much better than our politicians. And, and, and what, is, what has always been true in this country, almost providentially so, is the emergence of the right leader at the right moment. And we're waiting. <laughs> but I know they're out there. When we look at some of these young people up there, maybe it's one of them. Or maybe it's one of you. You've been quoted as saying that Fox News is like state TV. As a political communications professor here in our audience, what are a couple strategies that every citizen should do or use to counter untruths? Well, I was, this is an enormous problem. The dishonesty of the Trump administration is parroting on, on Fox TV, has put into question the very notion of objective truth. And without objective truth, you can't have accountability. The late great Democratic Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan said in America, everyone's entitled to their own opinion, but not their own facts. And it's just objectively true that we don't live in that country anymore. What's disturbing though about Trump, his lies are lies of authority that require obedience. And this is true of all autocrats. What the leader says is true is true. It's right out of 1984 when Winston, at the end of the book, and the party official holds up four fingers and says, Winston, how many fingers am I holding up? And Winston, in tears from the torture, says, I can only see four. The party official says, but it could be three or it could be five. It's what the party tells you. And so we live in an era where we consume news like we consume music off of iTunes. For you young people up there, if I wanted to make a tape for my car back in the day, you hit record on a tape player next to the radio. And then you listen to eight songs you didn't like and you did it again. And after a week, you had a tape. Well, no one hears an opinion or news that they don't want to hear. And so as our information sources have expanded, our horizons have become more narrow. And now we have a network that peddles in falsehoods and lies alternate reality, and when I said they were like state TV, I was being too kind because I was in Vietnam last week watching some state TV in English, and it's a lot more credible than Fox News. One of the students in the audience asks, how do you think America's sentiment of cultural exceptionism affects the current administration's immigration policy, and should it? So, if you go to the Washington Monument, you'll see a scar about a third of the way up. And it accounts for a line where the marble changed. 
But more importantly, it signifies the era in American history for 25 years where the construction of the Washington Monument was stopped because of a donation of marble from the Pope. There could not be Catholic marble. <laughs> and so for 25 years, the know-nothings, the anti-immigrant, nativist, anti-Irish, anti-Catholic, anti-German, shut it down. The nativism, the bigotry, the anti-immigrant stance has always been here. And it's our duty as Americans in this generation to remind our leaders that we are a stronger country because of our immigration, because anybody, and we've proved this for 240 years, if you buy into the idea of America, you can make it here. And we're a lot better off for the Ali Soufans of the world who came here from Lebanon, joins the FBI, and but for the incompetence of the bureaucracies, he would have stopped the 9-11 hijackers. A Muslim and an Arabic speaker. And God bless him, because we're better off with him. So we are a country of immigrants, we always will be, and this dark chapter of nativism and intolerance will pass and be left on the ash heap of remembrance like all the others who have tried to emulate George Wallace and the George Wallaces that came before. Another question from the student. How do you suggest that we as American citizens combat the distrust and the disdain for our federal government institutions that we hear so often? There was a uh, frightening uh, release of survey numbers from a Harvard University professor a couple of years ago, and this was pre-Trump, and he uh, asked people born in the 1930s how essential is it to live in a democracy, uh, and the answer was 85%. He asked people born in the 1980s, and the answer was 25%, and it's lower for people born in the 1990s. Trust, faith, and belief are the lubricants of a democratic republic. And we have a crisis of trust, we have a crisis of faith, and we have a crisis of belief. Young people are too young to be cynical. Your job is to be idealistic. It's to see the promise of the country and a better tomorrow. You're part of the largest generation in the history of the country. And you're gonna shape the future and the destiny of the country into the early years of the 22nd century. And so the work of restoring trust is going to be epic. And it's going to take a magnificent leader in order to be able to do it. But again, as Churchill pointed out, in a democracy, we get the government we deserve. We get the government we deserve. And so, the restoration of trust isn't somebody else's job. It's all of our jobs to impose on our government our values, not the politicians' values imposed on us. We have a number of questions about your involvement in the McCain campaign with Sarah Palin. Sarah Palin was uh, at our. He said, our relationship was so good, they made a movie about it. Yeah. Uh, can, can you draw a straight line from Sarah Palin to Donald Trump in terms of uh, the game-change candidate the Republican Party was looking for? I mean, no. I don't think you can in this sense. You can if you're like, A is more incompetent than <laughs> Trump's the only obvious answer. Um, but the nativism that we just talked about, Sarah Palin is part of a chain that flows back to George Wallace, to the 1930s, to the know-nothings of the 1840s, this mean-spirited, nasty, know-nothingness, reveling in ignorance, and it, it's always been there. Um, and frankly, she, 
in the campaign after the economic collapse on September 15th, when it was plainly evident when the right track numbers dropped to 6% that Barack Obama was going to be elected president, she saw that the angrier her speech, the angrier her rhetoric, um, the louder the crowd started to, to cheer. And so this is somebody who very much turned to the, towards the dark side um, as opposed to towards the better angels of our nature. And she did it because she saw a celebrity paycheck. That's why she quit her job as governor. She looked at the vice presidential campaign and says, wow, I'm gonna be a reality TV star, which trust me, none of us were thinking, um, <laughs> you know, as we, as we threw the long ball. Um, but at the end of the day, um, of course she shouldn't have been picked. She was completely unqualified for the job. There were, and I've talked about this over the years, you know, a systemic failure of the, of the vetting process. And one of the reasons I've talked about it publicly is so that it never is repeated again. And that other campaigns as they go through this and they're behind and they're looking for what's the move we can make to try to get ahead that they don't make the move we made. And um, mistakes happen, one happened there, and um, hopefully it never happens again um, at a vice presidential level. But, but for sure, um, we have someone meaner, more incompetent, um, and, and, and frankly, across the constellations of virtues, just worse now as president. Uh, but, but one did not beget the other. They, they are symptoms of something bigger in the politics and in the culture. A number of questions about the media and the responsibility of the media in reporting on an administration that's fundamentally dishonest. Uh, should every lie, every half-truth, every dishonest statement be highlighted? Uh, how is a, a, a reporting uh, a reporter or in a newspaper supposed to cover this this White House? Accurately. <laughs> Next question. <laughs> David Gergen said recently, he's a, another former speaker here at the forum, said recently that with a couple more presidents like the current one, our democracy will be at risk. Do you agree with that? It won't take a couple. How, how much at risk is our democracy? It's at, it's at risk. And what are the dimensions these of that these risk? institutions are fragile. Listen, you have the president of the United States and you have formerly responsible people appearing on Fox News talking about locking up political opponents, locking up senior officials at the Justice Department, the intelligence communities, lifelong public officials. Right? That's not America. Right? Now, a third of the country may choose to live in Trumpistan. Okay? Now, good for them. 60 to 65 percent of us want to continue to live in America. And there's more of us than them. But when you assault these institutions, you undermine the rule of law, you lie constantly, you challenge objective truth, yes, that is an assault on foundational pillars of the American Republic. And the people that are working in this White House are not there serving the public. They are complicit in an attack on institutions that are essential and that have been built over two centuries and defended at great cost and sacrifice, sacrifice, frankly, that beggars the imagination. And not only should we be upset about it, not only should we be angry about it, we should be enraged by it, we should be activated by it, and every one of us should understand, every one of us should understand our essential responsibility as trustees of the greatest inheritance that could ever be bestowed on you. That's being an American. And Americans aren't just connected to each other in their communities and across the country. Americans are connected to each other through the generations. The work of defense of these institutions is for the generations of Americans yet born. And the assault on them is unacceptable. It's tragic, but it must be fought. And at the end of the day, those institutions are strong enough 
with all of us behind them to stave off the assault by one former reality show host. Another question from a student about the Republican Party. Uh, it seems to be moving toward more extreme positions, socially, fiscally, financially, et cetera. Is there space in that party for moderates or for minorities? No. Um, which is, a, which is a, a tragedy. It's not. Listen, when one of the great things about The Apprentice was that Little John and Gary Busey could be fighting in one episode. And in the very next episode, they'd be the best of friends again. Anything was possible on The Apprentice. Now, when this president says that there's good Nazis in the crowd, his moral authority is gone, poof. Not that he ever had any, but those that came vested with the office evaporated for all time in an instant. It doesn't reset on Monday. So when the Republican Party hugs Judge Roy Moore in Alabama, when you see the modern day Pharisees and money changers in the temple, the Franklin Grahams, the Jerry Falwell Juniors, when you see the corruption, and, and, let, me, and let me be clear speaking to an audience that I know is is predominantly filled with members of the Democratic Party. <laughs> let me, let me, do not cheer the demise of the Republican Party. Do not cheer the demise of the Republican Party because both of these parties are two of the greatest institutions, not just in the history of the country, but in the history of the world for the advancement of human freedom and dignity. And each party has produced the indispensable leader that saved America in the 19th century, Abraham Lincoln, and who saved the world in the 20th century, Franklin Roosevelt. Right? The demise of the Republican Party, its corruption, its decrepitude, is a national tragedy. That begs the question, whither the Republican Party? What's next for them? Well, I, my, my view is that the, the Trump era will disrupt American politics in a, in a profound way. That we have a two-party system is because there's been a tradition. Now, if you go into a supermarket, there are 78 jars of peanut butter to choose from. Right? There's choices on everything. You know, when I was a kid, there were 13 channels. And then there were 26. And now there's 8 million in 26. And so the, the point is, is that I believe in markets. And when there's a vacuum, I believe the market will fill it. Will we have an independent candidate? Will there be a new party? Um, I don't know. But the right of center sensibility that says that traditions matter and what comes before roots us doesn't hurt us, that fiscal responsibility, and we have two big spending parties. I want to, just if I may, talk about trillion dollar deficits and the trillion and a half dollars added to the tax cut, and you think, what, what's a trillion? What is it? Right? Let me make this analogy. A million seconds is 12 days from now. A billion seconds is 32 years from now. A trillion seconds is 32,000 years from now. We're 21 trillion in debt and heading to 30. The bankrupting of the country isn't just a fiscal and an accounting issue, it's a moral issue. And, and, and the best of the tradition of the Republican Party until recently was we're not going to bankrupt the country. And it's just like a marriage. There's one spouse who wants to build the addition. <laughs> and there's another spouse who says, what's it going to cost? You need the both of them together. 
and, and you need both parties to function in the same way. Great idea. How much is it going to cost? We have time for one more answer here. Could you describe uh, the reasons why you are, since you're hopeful about America, I hope you are, mm -hmm. uh, assuming you are, why are you hopeful about the future of this country and its democracy? The, being in the Lord's house, I won't get into a disputation with him with regard to the Bible's labeling as the greatest story ever told. But I know for sure what the second greatest story ever told was. And that's the story of this country. Founded in revolution. Preserved through civil war. A story of people fighting to realize the perfect idea that breathed life into the country and animated it. There are Americans all around us who are doing their duty, their jobs, that are decent and good. And so it is a profound mistake, profound mistake, to look at our politicians in Washington and to say, that's the country. I'm confident in the country because I'm looking at all of you. You're engaged. We're here talking politics here on a Tuesday morning. You're going to fight for your country. The people in this country understand the difference between right and wrong and good and bad. People understand their obligation to their children and to their grandchildren. People understand their obligations. People understand the greatness of the country. And the people, and it's always been the case, are much better, much stronger, much more virtuous than our politicians. We have the best entrepreneurs, the best research universities, the greatest businesses, the greatest small businesses. If you lost everything and you had to start over somewhere, where would you pick? If you had $100 to invest, where would you invest it? I think the answer is obvious. It's the United States of America. We are not defined by the worst amongst us. We are defined by the best amongst us. And the story of America is the story of the better angels of our nature triumphing, triumphing over the worst instincts of people. Thank you very much, Steve Thank Schmidt. You.